a whole vocabulary to talk about settler colonialism and white um, privilege and cultural appropriation. None of that existed in um, the 1980s in a sort of, um, there was no sort of articulation of that, but the ideas were out there. Um, it just, you know, now I think you study Native American issues in college and you come out with a whole um, suitcase full of of prepackaged ideas that then you can apply and see how they fit. Um, and I didn't have that suitcase with me. Welcome to the East Anchorage Book Club. I'm your host, Andrew Gray. The purpose of this podcast is to tell the stories of Alaskans of interest and importance. Today, our guest is author Tom Kaziah. He is most well-known for his best-selling 2013 book, Pilgrim's Wilderness, which was chosen by the New York Times as the best true crime book set in Alaska. Kaziah began his life here in the late 70s, based in Homer at the Homer News. In the early 80s, he was hired by the Anchorage Daily News, and while working as a reporter for that paper, he wrote a series called North Country Journal. That project required him to travel to Alaskan villages off the road system and report back. In 1991, he expanded some of those stories into his first book, The Wake of the Unseen Object, Travels Through Alaska's Native Landscapes. In 2021, that book celebrated its 30th anniversary and was reprinted by the University of Alaska Press. We are discussing The Wake of the Unseen Object today. He will be back later this year to discuss Pilgrim's Wilderness and his most recent book, Cold Mountain Path, for which he was named 2022 Historian of the Year by the Alaska Historical Society. Tom Kaziah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I, I just want to acknowledge that we are recording this the morning after we've learned of the tragic passing of Jean Patola Jr. Um, I I bring it up because I know that you, in your acknowledgments, you uh, acknowledge his father, Jean Patola Sr. So I assume you knew his dad. I don't know if you knew him. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's such a a deep knot of of people out there you know yeah so did uh did his i assume his dad uh helped you with the section in the yk delta or or um oh yeah yeah just all over I, you know i'd known him for several years before working on those stories and and uh just his his breadth of knowledge of the region and of the issues he was a person you could just call up and talk to and find out about a lot of about what was going on without having to sort of slap it into the newspaper the next day. Mm, and did you know Gene Patola Jr.? No, I didn't. No. You didn't? Okay. Well, um, yeah, definitely uh, thinking of the Patola family today. Well, tell us about you and your childhood. Where did you grow up? I grew up in the suburbs of New Jersey um, and went to college in Massachusetts and Western Massachusetts and, and, uh, came up to Alaska for adventuring, but also with the idea that it would be a good subject. I knew I wanted to be a journalist and uh, it would be a place to start a career. It turned out to be a place to to have an entire career. Um, How old were you when you knew you wanted to be a journalist? You know, I probably, probably even in high school, I was covering sports for the local weekly and uh, um, 
I knew I wanted to be some kind of a writer, actually. I guess, you know, my first years in Alaska, I was editing the Homer News and um, living in Homer and building a cabin. But I was trying to go straight to write the great Alaska novel. And, mm. you know, so I was really kind of dabbling in a lot of things those first four or five years. And um, it was really only when I got hired on at the Anchorage Daily News and moved up to Anchorage to work for the paper that I committed to making journalism really the focus of my career um, to really take it seriously and go all in. So were you a new college grad who saw an ad for Homer to go to work or did you, did you, <laughs> no. did you move to Homer and then start writing? No, I came up to Alaska to go mountain climbing. Um, and, and, uh, and then I had, I had come up on a college, um, summer, um, to do a first ascent up here and then came back after, uh, graduating with some friends and we spent the good part of the summer up in the Brooks range. And then I stayed on with the idea of getting a job at the Anchorage or Fairbanks papers to start a career. And having done my interviews and waiting for a response, I wandered down to Homer to meet some old college friends who had moved here. And they said, Hey, the local weekly is looking for somebody with some journalism experience. Um, and, uh, what about, how would you like to take over the weekly paper here? And it really wasn't anything that was, that wasn't my career trajectory, anything I had in mind, but I kind of fell in love with the idea. And, um, yeah. And what year so, was it that you came up the first time? 73 in college and 75 um, when I graduated. So and, it was right during yeah. the oil fight in Kachemak Bay, and there was a lot to write about. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, and did the, I, I, I guess you applied for jobs in Fairbanks and Anchorage Daily News, but didn't, or didn't get them or yeah and the anchorage times the fairbanks paper eventually offered me had offered me a job but by then i was kind of smitten with the homer idea and so gotcha. i just the other other ideas drop the other applications drop how long did you stay in homer before you took the job in anchorage well i was you know four years in homer and then i went back to washington dc for a year and a half to sort of um, pinch myself and say, what am I doing in Alaska? And, and then I realized I really missed Alaska. And that's when I made the decision to come back and work for the Anchorage Daily News and like I say, just plunge in. I bring it up because when you made the pitch um, to do reporting from rural Alaska, you um, separated yourself from the other reporters working there, that you were the only one who had lived outside of a big city in Alaska that you, you know, sort of pitching Homer as, you know, a smaller, um, more rural setting. And therefore you were the right person for the job. <laughs> well, yeah, that was my, my excuse. Um, it was actually true. You know, I had a negative feeling about Anchorage moving up from Homer, um, having just been a Homer resident for all those years, um, and was very happily, um, you know, very pleased to realize how broadening it was to move to Anchorage and suddenly to be connected to all the far-flung parts of Alaska, as opposed to just knowing the lower southern Kenai Peninsula as well as I got to know it. Can you talk a little bit about uh, working for the Homer paper and then what 
journal, you know, what it was like working for um, the ADN in the early 80s. And just uh, that for a lot of our listeners, I would guess that, that, you know, journalism 40 years ago was very different than it is today. And if you could just give us a little flavor of what, what that, that time period was like working as a journalist. Well, the working at the Homer News was basically like running my, I was the editor of my college paper and I was mm-hmm. kind of doing the same kind of wacky things um, for the paper here. Like local interest stories. Yeah, um, but like, you know, just, we could just do whatever, you know, the poor readers here had to sort of bear with our <laughs> sense of humor. But do you remember part- any particular, any particular stories that, that, that you're kind of embarrassed about now? embarrassed about no i think you know we did great um it was really um you know it was a rich time and I, and if the funny thing is that i had um several of my uh friends from college who came up and were equally smitten by homer and and sort of succeeded me at the as editors for the homer news um and they all went on to you know actually big national careers so um it was kind of for for many years the homer news was kind of the triple a ball club of of Alaska journalism. Um, a, a lot of reporters who went on to the Anchorage Daily News started in at the Homer News. Um, but when I went to Anchorage, it was kind of the golden age because the um, McClatchy had just bought the Anchorage Daily News, the struggling morning paper that was really about to die. Um, in the late 70s, um, the uh, some of the best journalists in Anchorage had coalesced around a statewide weekly called the Alaska Advocate, and that was going to be the surviving alternative to the powerful establishment Anchorage Times after the Anchorage Daily News died because it was withering on the vine there. Then when the McClatchy's came in and uh, decided to pump a lot of money into a, a real newspaper war and fight back, um, they hired the Alaska Advocates um, leadership to run the Anchorage Daily News. So it was the best of all worlds from my point of view. I had been writing some for the Advocate, but from Homer. So I knew them and they knew me and um, sort of welcomed me into the fold there in the early 80s, just as um, as the newspaper war started. So it was a great time um, to be to be writing because they had money to put into projects that like the the North Country Journal series that mm-hmm. before you did the North Country Journal series what was your beat you know they came, when i when i got there they um offered me the oil and gas beat which was considered the prestigious beat in Alaska um because i had you know experience unlike a lot of the other new reporters i'd lived here for a long time um but i and then the other one was the traditional entry level um, uh, beat of the police beat. And I surprised them by picking the police beat because uh, I really wanted to write kind of a street level human interest drama stories that, that as a writer, I was a I was a fan of, uh, you know, I'd been reading Jimmy Breslin in New York and the, some of the great journalists of that new journalism era and that was the kind of work I wanted to do in Alaska. I didn't want to be, you know, going in to interview white collar executives about, you know, long range spending plans. 
Um, mm. So, um, and it was a great choice. It really affected um, my life um, and and gave me the opportunities to to move. Uh, and and then the, when I went out to cover the bush, I was sort of doing it with that same kind of storytelling attitude that that I had as a police reporter. Um, you know, the, so I was trying to find those small feature dramatic feature stories rather than the um than the um you know environmental impact statement um uh stories but i you know i did enough of those too to understand the issues right so what we're here to discuss today is your book the wake of the unseen object travels through alaskan's native landscapes which was published in 1991 and then republished again in 2021 just a, a couple of years ago on the 30th anniversary and um that grew out of the out of the series that you did for the ADN. Um, one of the unusual, uh, I guess, instructions, or, or 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 maybe you can talk a little bit about um, whether it was your own uh, part of the pitch was to if you saw a news story to run the other way. Well, that um, was that actually came from my editors, from Howard Weaver and Pat Doherty. You know, they gave me a little. Um, index card to carry in my pocket. And one of them was to run the other way if I saw a news story while I was out in one of these villages. Um, and the idea was to kind of break the bad habits that are not bad habits, but the usual habits of a, of a reporter, which is to, like I say, find an environmental impact statement and write a story about along those lines or, or go to a hearing and, and um, you know, quote people's testimony and what the officials say in response and that kind of a story that wasn't even even if it was set in a village that that wasn't the kind of story i was out there to look for um and so it took a a sort of rigor to um look in the other direction and and uh that was that was part that was part of their um their edict is and the other one another one i remember was um if i felt that need to use a term of anthropology to lie down and breathe deeply until the feeling passed um, because I was going to be writing about native people, native cultures, and they didn't want it to be a sort of social science exercise. They really wanted it to be about real people doing real things and to give the whole idea, really the way I had pitched it was Anchorage doesn't really know much about what's the rest of Alaska is like, even though we think we do here in Anchorage, we really don't. And um, we need to, as a paper, we can sort of tie this state together if we tell them in Anchorage what it's what it's like out there. So the idea was to give the perspective from the villages looking back at Anchorage rather than to be in Anchorage looking out at the village. Um, and that took a, a big commitment you know for time and and travel to to spend time out there and to um to try to find the stories that would tell that i also tried to find for this newspaper series keep the stories really short so that um because i had a tendency to write these big you know thumb sucking uh uh sunday stories um and in this case i wanted the series to be 
something that people would um they'd see the little logo for the series and say oh i know i can finish this story with this cup of coffee and not set it aside to read for the weekend so tried to break it down into a lot of little short stories and then eventually coming back to it two years later to start writing a book I had to kind of work at the other direction take all that material and then um, extend them into longer chapters well i kind of uh alluded to it earlier that that just by my tone when you, when you when you pitched that you had lived four years in homer and therefore you were the right person for this job i mean homer is on the road system it's a predominantly white city you know it's not it is not a rural village in alaska and um i'm wondering if you remember uh the very first village that you went out to to do the series for and um if you had any moment of realization that um that this was going to be harder than you had imagined well you know i had actually done a mini version of this when i was at the homer news um i went out to nanwalik which was known as english bay in those days and port graham and seldovia and wrote about the three native corporations over there this is in the you know 77 i think or 76 um and nobody'd really done looked in on them before and said what's going on here and they were there was such such an eye-opening experience for me to go over and hang out in those villages um that i kind of knew a little bit about what i was setting myself up for but yeah you know i definitely very steep learning curve going out into the villages um and i'll just also say homer was much more remote in 1975 than it is these days i mean there was no real tourist industry down here believe it or not um when i first got here um so um uh but getting out to the villages um you know in the when you read the book it's the first uh few chapters i do a lot of stumbling through some bad interviews and sort of trying to find my way and and express the confusion that I'm feeling out there um and while that was a, certainly a feeling that I that came back repeatedly over the course of several years of travel um in the book it tends to accumulate in the first chapters and then you know because the the book the narrative arc is kind of me learning how to right no the world I was curious if the book takes place in chronological order or if you reordered it so that it sort of made more sense. I mean, are the first few chapters literally the first few from the series or was it random? Yeah, no, no, I did. Um, it, it did fall pretty much in the, um, in the order uh, that they happened. Um, uh, and so sometimes it was the, uh, the right my writing that would emphasize something at one in one trip that you could have emphasized in a number of different trips but it this is something i want to deal with early in the book so i'll bring this theme in at on this trip um so i was thinking in those terms um when uh when i wrote the book not so much when i was doing the original reporting um yeah this is it was only about 40 percent of the trips that found their way into the, I mean, of the stories that I wrote, not the trips, but of the stories that found their way into the book. Um, so there was a lot of 
removing and judgment there. Right. So uh, only 40% of the stories, but you said you expanded them for the book. I mean, I mean, obviously like the, the namesake of the book, The Wake of the Unseen Object, that's a pretty long chapter. I would imagine that longer than one cup of coffee. Right. So well, that was, yeah, 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 that was a, well, that that's the concluding chapter and it was mm-hmm. kind of the final summer of my travels. And it was in a way, the place where I felt like I broke through the farthest into understanding what was going on around me um, and being able to. Right. Well, I, I would point out that there's you're in a, a very remote store when um, some I don't know if they're fish and game people, some two they white troopers, yeah. troopers come in and you um felt you you kind of acknowledged that you recognize the strangeness of them walking in because you felt that you'd sort of immersed yourself enough that you could feel how um, strange it was to see these two white men walk in to uh, basically tell folks what's going to happen here. Yeah, Um, that was it. Yeah. I kind of shrunk back into the shadows just to see what, what was going to happen. Yeah. Um, and I guess that kind of leads into the big question that comes up in your intro to the 2021 edition in which you state that a book like this wouldn't be written today. Uh, and I'm wondering if you could just expand a little bit on that and, and and the feeling of, of you know, how or why a book like this could not be written in 2023. Yeah. Well, I said that and I was hoping people would argue back against it. Um, so... <laughs> You know, I I sort of believe that I believe it would be much more difficult and and uh, much more challenging. But you know, for one thing, there's been a lot of changes in the villages compared to when I was traveling there in the ni- mid 1980s. Um, much more worldly um, with the internet and and um, you know, when I was there, television was just arriving, and that was one of the things I was writing about. Um, and you know. The the villages have had a lot more construction. They have a lot more people coming and going. There's a way of shunting visitors off into certain housing. Um, a lot of that didn't exist. And I found myself, you know, sleeping on people's couches and invited in, um, always, you know, declaring who I was as a reporter traveling around for the Anchorage Daily News, um, really, um, grateful and learned a lot about the the um hospitality in, in the villages um and um and and tried to be respectful so that if you know sometimes somebody you know I wasn't going into somebody's living room and then writing about what a mess it was um you know um so trying to be a good good visitor but so that's one change is that the villages um wouldn't receive a writer in the same way um uh, I think that there were um, more voices coming from the the villages now, more writers, um, more way to express themselves. At the time, it, there really wasn't very much of that. And I felt sort of justified in going out there and trying to empathetically learn and write about it because there wasn't another way for the villages to make their um, opinions known. Um so, so that would change to, that'd be a change too, you know, like people would say, what, why do we want to um, pay attention to the sort of quirky observations of a 
white guy who doesn't live here when we can tell you what it's like ourselves. Um, and um, and then there's also the um, you know there's a whole political change now. There's a whole vocabulary to talk about settler colonialism and white um, privilege and cultural appropriation. None of that existed in um, the 1980s in a sort of, um, there was no sort of articulation of that, but the ideas were out there. Um, It just, you know, now I think you study Native American issues in college and you come out with a whole um, suitcase full of, of prepackaged ideas that then you can apply and see how they fit. Um, and I didn't have that suitcase with me. So, um, but I did have the advantage, you know, I went to Hampshire College in Western Massachusetts and um, it was um, kind of a cradle of of political correctness back in the 1970s. And I had a very um, uh, self-questioning attitude about what I was doing out there. I had the, um, you know, so so that the my blinders were part of my subject. Um, and I think one reason that the University of Alaska Press was interested in republishing the book is that it's still, um, you know, it doesn't seem as dated as it might because I was raising all those questions of cultural appropriation, even if I didn't use the exact language that's that's in use today. The uh, what was that? The um, somebody was talking about heteropatriarchal settler colonial fantasies. Um, you know, um, that was uh, that was me. But um, but I was talking about the why that was a, a problem. Um, but I think the reason that some of that came up was, um, and this is kind of a big, a, l- a little bit of a shift here. But what I thought I was trying to do and learn from when I went from writing the taking the small pieces that I'd written for the paper and turn it into a book was I was entering into the genre of what was really big at the time called literary travel. Um, And so Mm -hmm. um, to put the, you know, I wasn't really a character in most of the stories in the newspaper, but now I was going to turn it all into a first person book. So I might go to a village and I would come away with five stories about people and things that ha- are happening in the village. And um, then for the book, I would go back and rewrite the whole thing in first person. So it would start with me arriving in the village. And I'd, and so to figure out how to do that, I read some of the great literary travel works and figured out how they set up scenes and how they describe the weather and and how they move from, you know, historical sub background to current moments. Um, and that was really a big education for me. Um, and it was, um, but it was kind of a, there are all, all the guys, all the ones I was reading were white men, you know, traveling in the third world. And that's right. That imperial Their adventure tradition. reporting. Yeah. Like yeah. Bruce Chatwin. And I thought I, when I read your intro, it was interesting because I read Bruce Chatwin. Um, they're really uh, exciting, great books. I think um, what we know now is that there was a lot of literary license happening there. There was a lot of um, 
making the plot better than it probably was in real life. And you made a point of saying that you weren't going to do that, that you were going to be very accurate. Did you tape record anything? Did you bring a tape recorder with you to the villages? No, I usually didn't work with tape recorders in those days. Um, very rare. Um, so, I mean, it makes it difficult to do dialogue if, you know, yeah. if you're going to be really accurate. Mm -hmm. you know. I definitely, I would pull out my notebook and set it on the table, the coffee mm -hmm. table between us, you know, so they, and I would take notes. And so they had a sense of being on the record. I didn't want to sort of sneak off and then quote them afterwards. Um, and people didn't seem to mind for the most part. And when they did, I wrote about that too. Um, but yeah, uh, that was, you know, but I was working under the standards of a newspaper journalist and then having written these stories and been on the record, I couldn't like go sit in my, you know, my writing studio and and change the quotes or change what happened. Um, and I wouldn't have done that anyway, because I was still, you know, adhering to the standards of, of accuracy that the newspaper holds. Well, um, one thing that jumps out to me, and this is just reading any of um, reporting from the 80s and 90s, is the use of the term Eskimo, which we don't really use it's not very commonly used anymore. Um, it, it's, and then used in the context that you would hear Eskimos, Indians, and Aleuts, this sort of, these three different groups. And, uh, you know, for me, I, I'm always trying to figure out, well, who are the Eskimos? Is it the Anubiat? Is it the um, Siberian Yupik? Uh, is it the Yupik? And, and it seems like Eskimo was this term used for all three of those groups and one point that you made uh, did a good job of in in uh the final chapter was mentioning the bow and arrow wars which you can correct me if i'm wrong that was yupik on yupik violence yeah um, very much uh -huh. and um and i think you know when i had interviewed melanie banky um a couple of years ago she talked about uh the assumptions that are made where they'll group uh alaska native uh groups together when they are historic have historically been at war and that you know grouping uh siberian yupik with the with athabascan is is not a historically accurate way of putting people together and um but i think that the politically correct way that we say is uh Alaska Native, uh, to refer to all tribes in Alaska. So I think it's problematic both ways. Um, but think, the language has the, definitely changed. It's definitely changed. I mean, you, you had the, the Greenland Inuit and Northern Canada, but then you hear people, visitors come to Alaska and refer to the Yupik as Inuit. And that's not accurate either, as if it were some sort of pan-Arctic um, affiliation. Um, so, you know, what I was doing in at the time in the 80s, when I was, uh, in addition to writing these stories, I would every fall cover the AFN convention, the Alaska Federation of Natives, and they had a big banner across the stage saying Eskimo Indian Aleut. Uh, I mean, that was their proud proclamation in those days. So there was no real... Um, aversion to using those phrases at the time. And when we were going to reprint the book, I sort of pondered for a while, 
correcting that throughout, but it would have required just a wholesale revision of the book. And really, it was meant to be a reflection of what Alaska was like in the 80s. So it seemed appropriate just to keep it the way I wrote it originally, um, while acknowledging these changes in the new introduction for the, the new book. I'm actually going to correct myself. So the, I think the correct term is St. Lawrence Island Yupik. I think there's uh, probably saying Siberian Yupik is not accurate either. Um, so I'm correcting myself. So I, I mean St. Lawrence Island Yupik. Yeah, well, you know, um, when I went to English Bay in 1977 and I asked them, what's your sort of ethnic grouping here? And they said, Aleut. And um, then that evolved into Alutic. Mm-hmm. And then Pacific Eskimo was another term that was applied. And, um, you know, finally, Sukbyak was um, the uh, actual self-designation that is used now. But if you refer to Sukbyak, you've got a kind of a small part of Alaska. I mean, you need to acknowledge that, but it doesn't really explain how they fit in with other groups or where they're diff- where the lines are. I mean, it requires a whole paragraph of explanation when you get into each each local designation. Um, so, um, you know, it's 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 evolving, and um, I figured even if I changed it in 2021, it would be outmoded by 2031. So, I'm probably better just to keep it as a portrait of the 80s, and that's a that's one of the things that's kind of exciting to see this book survive and come back again. Um, is you know the old cliche of journalism being the first rough draft of history. And that's what I was writing. And now the book is kind of a work of history in that it's a depiction of what was what Alaska was like in the 1980s. Um, and it has a kind of a second second value apart from from its original um, intent. Did you had you studied the Yupik language before you started working on these stories? No, no. Um, you know, I was able to uh, learn from. Um, on the fly, you know, but I, and I did you actually like, um, I mean, did you study in earnest or was it just, you picked up words here and there? No, I was picking up. I mean, I made a couple of meager efforts to, um, understand how, how the words, how the sentences fit together. But, um, no, I was not no, nothing very cool. Well, you mentioned in the lat that the wake of the unseen object, about your ability to say eventually pronounce the Yupik word for it in a way that didn't make people laugh. Right. Can you say it for us? Kavlunak. That was um a word that I learned out there was the, you know, they would um see the uh, fish, the king salmon coming into the river and they could see the wake on the surface of the water. Um they couldn't see the fish itself, but they could see that there were fish moving. I've, you know, I've seen that with silver salmon coming in to the Anchor River. And, you know, the um, word was kavluk, was uh, eyebrow in in, uh, Yupik. And they said, um, the fish are making eyebrows. Um, And then in the sort of climactic scene of that chapter, they're out hunting a beluga whale and pushing it into the shallows so that they could see the 
wake as it was swimming along and then they could shoot it and bring it back to um, feed feed the whole community there um and um so that was a wonderful term um and to me it was kind of it became a, a sort of a metaphor for my whole quest out there because as a naive white guy from the New Jersey suburbs, but an Alaskan and, you know, a well-informed Alaskan too, trying to write about the place that we all call home. I was um, not likely to have the insight of a elder or even, you know, an experienced anthropologist into what I was seeing on a five-day visit to a place, but I could get glimpses of it and I could see the um so i could sort of see the wake on the surface and that was the best i could um could bring bring back as a reporter were were the sort of signs of what was moving on moving below in that climactic section you wrote a little bit about uh feeling sorry for the whale um which as a reader i appreciate it i mean i think that um for folks who didn't grow up hunting whales there, I think there is some, you know, on the one hand, this is a, uh, uh, for millennia, uh, the way that they have provided for themselves in the villages, the way villages have provided for themselves. Um, but I think there is a little bit of a, uh, feeling bad for the whale and you acknowledge that you also said that you felt better because, uh, one of the folks on the boat felt bad too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was a little connection there we had, but um, you know, I had talked a lot in the book about different kinds of subsistence and the value. So I, you know, I wasn't um, uh, coming at this sort of as a, this wasn't the first time I discussed this issue. Um, But, you know, I wanted, when you're writing, you, you have to keep the reader in mind as well as, be empathetic to the subject. And the challenge for good writing is to keep shuttling back and forth between those two. Um, So I wanted to be able to connect with the reader's feelings in that moment as I described that hunt. Um, But then I think clearly it's justified by, by what follows after they, they catch the whale and bring it in and, and carve it up and distribute it and, and gave me a box with whale meat to bring back to the camp where I was staying. You wrote um, an article for the New Yorker in 2016 about Anubiat whale hunters. Um, so I'm just thinking, you know, that's 30 years of reporting on whale hunting. I mean, uh, had have do you still? I mean, do you still have ambivalence about whale hunting? I mean, as expressed at the in the end of the book, you know. No, I don't think. No, I, I think I'm. It wasn't really ambivalent about it. It was, you know, I think there's a little human connection there, but I think that the hunters feel that too, and I, that was what I wanted to express um, that they realize they're taking a life, but that it's, you know, for the higher purpose, and that the that the spirit of the animal is participating in this. Um, and um, I understand that way of approaching it. And, and it seems wholly justified, um, you know, um, certainly in the Nupiak world, it's uh, 
it's the center of of the whole daily life and culture up there so um and so in that in the new yorker piece i was writing about how climate change was uh, affecting that whale hunt um and how the whale hunters the whaling captains who had always resisted any kind of offshore oil because it would threaten you know with direct you know environmental consequences their whale hunt um, but also with the indirect um uh consequence of of climate change and losing the ice to hunt on um that was um going to be you know a problem for the whaling culture and yet these are the whaling captains are also the you know uh board members of asrc and um you know they have a responsibility to their communities up there to kind of keep the the modern civilization that they've built in the arctic um even though it's a very expensive one to maintain and um if they didn't promote offshore oil at that point they were not sure they how they were going to you know continue into the future i think it's still a big question how they're going to you know how, what's going to be going on up there 50 years from now as the oil economy tapers off um and um that's kind of what i wanted to get at in that story they seem like the ultimate americans in a way because they were more tied to the environment than really any americans i know and yet they're also more tied to oil development than any americans i know and so what a what a dilemma for that place and that culture well speaking of climate change i i was mapping as i read the book you know trying to see where you were and so i was googling the place name and then zooming in on the map and the last chapter on scammon bay when they uh take their skiff up to black river um that was that 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 required some fancy terminal some fancy searches to actually find that particular black river because there's a few um and uh but when you do that so i encourage people to do this if you just uh zoom in on scammon bay and then go north you wrote about it. You talked about how this, uh, all of this land is uh, it's sort of Swiss cheese-like with lakes and rivers and tributaries, like the whole delta, but it's just such an enormous, vast amount of land. You can, and, and you wrote that, that, that it's pretty much all sea level um, and that just a little bit of an increase in sea level <laughs> would create islands, um, and uh you know i don't know would just vastly change the map of western alaska because so much and i think just looking at that um the 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 google map and zooming in and just seeing how much more water than land there already is is really instructive i'm afraid i was probably being a little flippant when i wrote that in the 80s you know about Gee, if the water comes up to feet, you're going to have, you know, that mountain out there is going to be an island and there's, you know, we're going to lose 50 miles of tundra. Um, but yeah, I, I haven't actually heard much discussion of that um, uh, in a, you know, um, in, in the current day. I think the erosion issues out there are maybe a precursor of those of that. Um, I want to go to the book. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to use the first. Do, which edition do you have in front of you? I can use. I, I have the 
the original one. Here. Okay, the, the original one's easier for me to do. So page right. 40, on page 47, this was when you were in Wales, and um, I'm pretty sure, is that what I'm talking yeah. about? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this is when you're, you, you, you're, you're climbing um, sort of the, the, the burial mound, um, which my experience as a reader in this section is um wow you really maybe shouldn't be doing that like i mean you know there is a little bit of like a uh because you talked specifically about finding the remains of graves and um seeing bones and um i don't know can you talk about that particular visit and that particular uh ex you know sure. independent expedition yeah did you want me to read that well part yeah can yeah. you read can yeah, you read it was yeah, um, go ahead and read those couple of paragraphs because that's um, when you uh, you came upon the weathered boards among the rocks. Yeah, I came upon a few weathered boards among the rocks. Pieces of a coffin, delicate curves of driftwood lay nearby. I stopped and looked more closely. The driftwood fragments were gray, deteriorating animal bones, whale bones, caribou antlers, left to mark the grave of a hunter. I descended to a ledge below. More boards were scattered about. Wedged between two small rocks was the top of a human skull. Whether it was because I had come upon a central burial zone or because I adjusted my vision, knowing what to look for, I found the remains of other graves on nearby ledges. Objects were dispersed over a wide area, as if the old cairn graves had flown up mystically and scattered themselves. Sometimes I would come across a human bone or two, but mostly there were remains of animals and personal belongings, the rusted barrel of a rifle, a chipped enamel coffee cup. I touched nothing, but felt like a voyeur. Even pulling out a notebook to write down what I saw seemed a defilement, a damaging exposure that might arrest these things in time, inhibit their return to wind and dust. You know, um, so I was feeling a lot of confusion out there. To be clear, this is a big mountain behind the village. Um, and um, it's a part, it's a place along the slope up there. Um, and I knew that that was where they had traditionally, before the creation of the cemetery with the, you know, church crosses down on the beach, um, this is where they had traditionally buried people, you know, in the past, um, laid them out in the open. Um, and, um, you know, I had asked a number of people, is it okay if I walk up there? And I said, yeah, but don't touch anything. Um, so, you know, I had cleared the going. I wasn't just sort of doing it as a, you know, arrogant visitor, but um, I was full of doubt being up there. Um, and this is this kind of the climax of the first chapter in the book, which is really to um, open these questions about what is my role out here and, and what is, um, you know, what has survived from the past and how, how, what is the meaning of, of, of that earlier life that the village lived and how does it carry forward into the present? Um, so I was sort of using that um, to, to open up a lot of questions that don't really get necessarily answered in that, in that chapter. Um, you know, I was trying to frame the questions rather than, than say, here's, here's what, uh, here's where the answer is. I want you to read another paragraph from page 92. This is when um when you're in Golovin. Um 
and I, you know, you, and I think, you know, for folks out there who haven't read the book, you, you're, you're, you bring your own tent and you stay in a tent. Did you stay in a tent everywhere or did not you- everywhere, but sometimes I, I wanted to, I didn't want to be totally abject, um, showing imposing up. yourself. Yeah. Right. Sometimes people would invite me in to stay, but if, if they didn't, you know, I could take care of myself. Mm. So um, this is when you're uh, waking up um, in in Golovin. So if you'll just read that paragraph on page 92 that starts with, I stood in the deep sand. I stood in the deep sand outside my tent and stretched and looked across the bay. Shafts of light moved on the tundra hills. The emptiness seemed forlorn. I was leaving the Seward Peninsula, and it was sad to think about everything that was passing. The older people I'd met the last generation to have grown up in a world wholly unlike our own. I knew I'd never again be able to cruise so calmly through my newspaper's obituaries, those brief paragraphs that marked the passing of men and women in their 80s, the elders of distant villages that were not so timeless after all. Yeah, I wondered, did you follow the obituaries? Well, yeah, um, I certainly did. You know, to this day, I... um, because I've lived here so long and and traveled so broadly, I always read through the names in the obituaries. Um, And um, I think that was partly a moment to just make an important distinction that I tried to make throughout that instead of seeing these sort of remote native villages as some sort of, um, uh, timeless um you know surviving you know part part of another world that it's a really a contemporary place with real people and and um that this is um uh you know trying to to understand um understand it as part of my world and not just some other some some romantic other um and um but i was that again is fairly early in the book and i was um there's a bit of a literary um effort underway in that paragraph um because um i didn't want this book to be an elegy for a lost world at all you know i wanted it to be about the contemporary world and that chapter a lot of that chapter was about a a really interesting young man, an Apache, um, who had come to Golovin to um, sort of impress upon the elders there that the old ways could still um, be lived. And he was more into it than he, he was from Arizona, as I recall, California, but he was really more into the old ways than than a lot of the young people in the villages and and he'd made nice connections with some of the elders um in that way but um it was a sort of a interesting contrast between him and you know his his evangelizing for the the old ways and uh the realities that i saw around in the village so um i was sort of building that um elegiac quality in that particular paragraph um, because it was a contrast to saying goodbye to Tanisha um, in, you know, the next page. Um, so, you know, I could have probably written a very happy 
paragraph about getting out and being so excited at all my great experiences here. But, you know, in terms of the flow of the story, I wanted to stress that sort of mournful feeling there. Um, we're getting towards the end of our time. I So I'm going to kind of combine a couple of my last questions together. But, I, you know, you the parts that were really, um, I guess, eye-opening for me was the chapter of the River People, the chapter of the Yupit Nation about uh, tribal sovereignty, sovereignty and um, these uh, moves for independence that I, I personally was not educated about. Um, and I assume because you were here for Anilka and, and you know, that Anxa and Anilka were part, sort of part of your journalistic vocabulary, especially in those late 70s, early 80s. But were you tracking, was was that well reported at the time? Were, 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 were people talking about um, tribal independence? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It was a, it was a big deal. Um and that was really one of my main subjects in as a reporter in the 80s. And at the AFN meetings, it was all brewing just kind of under the surface, this sort of um, second generation reaction to the land claims corporations and the village level push for um, bringing tribe, tribal councils, tribal governments back into the foreground um, as a alternative um at the time um it was different people and different generations and i thought it was a really fascinating subject but it was um controversial uh for a long time i remember um getting <laughs> i remember one time um <clears throat> going writing a story at afn and going up to the front and willie hensley was up there and he said cuz i your stories are all full of shit um and and it, it, in fact the story I had written that um, morning did have a paragraph that was full of shit because it was um, I had said something about Oliver Levitt was one of the new corporation guys who drove around in a Mercedes. And in fact, he didn't have a Mercedes. I had been told that, but I hadn't double checked it. So that was a lesson to a young reporter. Um, he drove an old beater around Anchorage. And um, so but they were mad because I was giving a lot of of attention to this sort of tribal upsurge. And I was really interested in how that had created this divisions within the native community in Alaska. Um, and, you know, flash forward 40 years now that there's, it's no longer even, you know, remotely an issue um, because the tribes are so well placed and so powerful um, having a lot to do with changes in federal policy and especially um, doing away with the regional nonprofits as the health corporations and instead funneling all that money through the tribes, um, all the all the healthcare money um, through native consortium. So um, now, uh, you know, they're they're co-equals, I think you could say with the, and and to kind of it's really becomes a portrait of a different time and a kind of, I think, an important, I would say, um, historical document to go back and remember where all of this began, because you couldn't find people now to sort of admit that there were class, such such strong culture clashes within the Native community. 
um, which just reminds me of there was like a I think it was Edmund Wilson, the great um, writer from the 30s and 40s and 50s, who once was writing about um, he discovered that, my gosh, I've been writing about upper state, upstate New York for years, but I didn't realize there was a big Iroquois community here and they're full of internal, interesting internal politics. And and he said what he, he learned is that every like 10 years or so, a journalist will come along and um, and to re- and discover native internal politics. And basically what they do is they lift the lid on a kettle and they peer inside and say, yep, it's still boiling and then put the lid back and move on. And, you know, I kind of felt like that was what I was doing in the eighties in a way, but um, I think it's that boiling is, is, you know, hugely important to Alaska. And that's why I really wanted to um, get that into the Anchorage daily news. Um, Last question. Are there any particular, um, memories that you have from reporting on this book that might surprise me? Like, you know, because uh, I would say from reading the book, I, I, I feel like the, the namesake chapter at the end with the whale hunt seems to be, you know, it is the climax. It is the most memorable part. Um, are there, are there any that, that you think about frequently that, that, that might surprise a reader of the book? Hmm. Um, you know, I don't know. Um, I think, uh, I think when I've gone back out to a few of those places, um, I, um, I'm sort of surprised at the changes, but, um, no, I don't know. I, I think the one thing that I'll, I will just say that, sort of most gratifying follow-up was um, when the folks from Black River um, made sure that I came to a native dance performance, you know, five years or so after the book was published. And they had composed a dance um, uh, based around Kavlunak, which they had never really, I mean, it was an important term to them, but they hadn't really thought of it in as a metaphor the way I had used it. And now they had a whole dance about sort of watching for these eyebrows and they wanted me to come and see their dance. So I felt very honored by by that and um, tickled by that. Um, I, I, I do want to talk really fast about Tetlin. You know, that was an area where it was really hard for you to get in. And um, I think what I thought about in that section, you had written, I think it was on in uh, Lower Kalskag, uh, uh, and, and I'm I'm probably medging, getting them all wrong and getting them all mixed together, where you had talked about how um, a white man had to be married in to really get into the community. But then you actually wrote about a white man who had owned a store, I think for like 26 years or so and was not married into the community. And so you were kind of basically, you made sort of a general statement and then you immediately provided an exception. Um, 
But what I thought was interesting is like, well, he had been in that very small community for 26 years. That's how he learned the community. But you as a reporter were not spending 26 years in any one community because you were, you know, reporting on communities, vastly different communities separated by, by crazy geographies. And, um, and, and so I guess like, I'm really getting to the point, like, 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 how was it even possible for you to really um, get a sense of a community when it was so difficult for you to even get into some of them? Yeah. Well, part of it was um, was that I had been, like I say, covering the AFN, covering native politics on a sort of as a more conventional reporter. And I'd gotten to know a lot of sources, both native leaders and, you know, native rights attorneys and even like accountants who worked in the villages and teachers and things um, through Anchorage and through statewide connections. And they came to trust my reporting and I would have conversations with them. They they don't show up in the book, but, you know, often there would be somebody would say, you know, you should go to such and such a village and look up this person because their family has this great story. And so I had all this sort of information in my pocket that I don't necessarily cop to in the telling the stories in the book, but I had a head, head start. Well, Hey, you know, that's really important because um, I read one critique of the book and um, the assumption that that, I don't even know if you call her a reviewer critic was that, you know, that this random white guy was dropping into random villages and then complaining about having difficulty talking to people. But Mm -hmm. the truth was, is that you weren't dropping into a random village. You had some connection. You knew somebody who'd recommended that you go there. You knew some people to ask for. And I would guess that in some cases, there were people who knew you were coming. It well, wasn't in some like cases, showing up randomly. Yeah, no, I didn't. And and I don't, I never said I was meeting somebody um, for the first time without any connection. If, you know, um, if that was not the case, um, you know, there was definitely some um, showing up and then looking up somebody while I was there and saying, hey, uh, Andy said I should drop by and say hi. And, you know, so there might be a kind of a, improvised moment there that that was um directed and sometimes they worked out and sometimes they didn't um hey one more last observation since we're at the end of our hour but um one thing that surprised me was just um how often there were there were folks who didn't speak english and i think what we hear a lot in anchorage is that these languages are dying and that you know intense efforts need to be made to save these native languages. And I'm sure that probably there's more English now than there was 30 years ago. But um, that was a surprise that there were instances where you really couldn't communicate. Yeah. Yeah. And that was generational too. You know, I think that that's changed in 40 years and in answer to that person, that the criticism of it, you know, um, there was uh, the fact that I had written these stories for the Anchorage Daily News and had published them and hadn't had blowback on them gave me a lot of confidence in writing the book then. Because um, there were a few things that I did hear back on when I wrote it in the paper. And then I changed that, you know, would amend it to 
make it appropriate for the the book so that it was a reflection of reality. Um, Can you think of a particular um, thing you had to change? Not offhand right now, but, you know, I did, I had a sense basically writing the narrative of the book that it was, um, it was kind of in, in a way that most travel books are not it, that, that I'd already sort of showed the first draft around Mm -hmm. and had it approved, um, by, by not having caused a big ruckus, you know, if, if you got something really wrong, um, you would hear about it because it's Alaska is still a small state. And I would run into these folks at AFN the next fall. And, you know, they would tell me if I'd gotten it badly wrong. Mm -hmm. So, well, Tom Kaziah, thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, we will do another, if it's okay with you about, uh, McCarthy. Um, Yeah. So uh, thanks so much. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for your interest. Thank you to Maya Narong for making this podcast listenable. And thank you to you, our listeners. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review us. To contact me, email eastanchoragebookclub at gmail.com. That's eastanchoragebookclub, all one word, at gmail.com.